tale of two cities. This is number three of seven, entitled The Modern Tower of Babel. First, let us pray. Our loving Father, today's message is of so great importance that we ask that the Holy Spirit be sent to each of our listeners to enlighten their hearts as we listen to thy servant concerning closing events. And may this message in some way reach the ears of many of our ministers that they too may awaken to the final crisis. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let us begin by reading two texts from the divine word of God that gives us insight for today's study. I shall read Revelation 17, verse 5, and 18, verse 21. And upon her head, her forehead, was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. Let us begin now by <clears throat> taking a look at the stirring activities that we see taking place today within modern Babylon. Notice how rapidly she is developing her strategy and with what precision she is accomplishing her design. How enthusiastically she is building her city. Already, many massive structures have been erected. But I ask you to turn your eyes with me upon one edifice within the very heart of this city, and you will see that which stands above all others in size. A closer look will reveal that all her citizens are joining together to unite in this one great project, the building of a modern Tower of Babel. Years ago, prophecy revealed that such a tower would be erected. As Bible students, we know that modern Babylon is composed of apostate Protestantism, papal adultery, and pagan idolatry. God states this mixture in these defining words found in Revelation 16, verse 19. The great city was divided into three parts. We know this to be spiritualism, Catholicism, and Protestantism. By the Tower of Babel, 
is represented the joining together and uniting in doctrines and traditions in a great consolidation of power. Of such, Revelation states in the 18th chapter, verse 5, her sins have reached into heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. In this study, we shall see that in the ecumenical movement, all the members of Babylon are uniting for the last great conflict against her enemy, Jerusalem. Now for a few moments, let us look at the history of these Babel builders. In the first World Council of Churches, which was held in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, we read from a report of the World Council, page 131, that the opening remarks of one leader states, in a most God-defying statement, these words, and I quote, the Tower of Babel was not a tower against God, but for God. Are you catching what this man is saying? Let me read that again. The Tower of Babel was not a tower against God, but for God, because Babel means the gate of God, the Chaldean meaning of the name. The people of those days simply wanted to build a city and a tower in order to concentrate the population there and to keep them together to this end. The tower had to be high, very high, so that everybody could see it. And the city was built for, notice these words now, for the unification of mankind. What a sublime human thought this was, because it's so very human to keep people together. It's human to build an indisputable center in order that men can always see it and could return to it. This is what you should pray for, that the Babel of languages, of national viewpoints, of religious ideas may become a Pentecost where the Spirit of God is poured out so that young men shall see visions and old men shall dream dreams." Unquote. What a blatant, open acknowledgement that the ecumenical movement being planned and fostered by modern Babylon was to establish, was to be established for a, an express purpose to oppose the authority of God. And you must never, never forget this. Man is determined to have a religion in his own way, boasting that the judgments of God will never overwhelm this stronghold. Modern Babylon, like Babel of old, 
is boasting today in the same words that you read in Genesis 11, 3. Go, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven and let us make a name lest we be scattered abroad. Thus Satan is urging his followers today. Let us make a union, this ecumenical program, so large, so powerful, that even God himself will not be able to divide us. But let me set the record straight. God's plan for unity is that man should base their theology upon God's word under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is the only divine plan that will ever produce true unity and a harmony among men. Amen? But these modern builders of Babel have chosen to disregard God's word and establish their own creeds based on traditions. Of this we read in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, 124. In the professedly Christian world, many turn away from the plain teachings of the Bible and build up a creed from human speculations and pleasing fables, and they point to their tower as a way to climb up to heaven. Isn't that interesting that here in this quotation Ellen White speaks of a tower which is none other than the ecumenical movement of our day. Although this ecumenical movement was started by Protestant churches, the Roman church soon joined with them to push the Tower of Babel higher by the addition of approximately one billion Catholic members. But when the Roman church joined the ecumenical movement, they made it very clear, very clear, why they were doing this for two reasons. First, they wanted to promote a union of all churches, Christian and pagan. Secondly, they wanted to promote a union of all nations of the entire world. This, they believed, would create a bond of peace and promote a mutual feeling of brotherly love, leading to the dominance of the world by the papacy. This was clearly revealed when Rome seized the initiative. Let me quote from the Salem, Oregon Statesman of October 12, 1962. Quote, Pope John XXIII opened the 21st Council of Roman Catholicism Thursday with a call for Christian unity. The setting was the pageantry packed St. Peter's Basilica. Christian love, he said, 
is the key to concord, justice, peace, and brotherly unity of all. Divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations so that there may be fulfilled the great mystery of that unity which Jesus Christ invoked with fervent prayer from his heavenly Father on the eve of his sacrifice." Unquote. Then the next day this same paper stated that, and I quote, Pope John XXIII gravely told national envoys from around the globe Friday that their governments must make peace or face an awful reckoning. He equated the reckoning with hell itself, urging that national leaders continue to meet together, negotiate, and even sacrifice to reach just and generous agreements to establish peace. In this same paper on October the 13th is recorded the reaction of the delegates and observers of this council, how they heartily welcomed the Pope's invitation for such unity. But here, let me pause for a moment to ask the question, who does this Pope represent? in asking and giving such direction. I hold in my hand a photocopy of the flyleaf of the Catholic version of the New Testament, printed especially for the U.S. Army under the direction of the President of the United States. It is written on a letterhead from the White House dated March 6, 1941, signed by Franklin D. Roosevelt, and at the bottom are the two signatures of papal approval. Now, with this background, let me turn to read Revelation 14:18 in this Catholic New Testament, which reads, quote, And another angel followed, saying, she hath fallen, Babylon the great, who of the wine of the wrath of her immorality has given all the nations to drink." Unquote. Now, if you could look with me, you would see that just before the word Babylon is a footnote, number one, to which if you will turn at the bottom of this page to the footnote number one, we find it reads, Babylon. In Jewish and Christian circles, Babylon was a symbol of Rome. So now we know that the Pope is the representative and the highest authority of Babylon, and without question, by their own admission and testimony. Now let us go back to our discussion of how this Pope's invitation for uniting the world and the Church was accepted. Immediately the Protestants and the Catholic leadership began to negotiate at the command of the Pope. I quote,
from the October 13 article of the Salem, Oregon Statesman. Quietly and secretly, Roman Catholic churchmen and representatives of at least 12 other Christian denominations made history here Friday. They sat down together in the seclusion of a hotel room and started a joint search for means of establishing closer contacts between their churches. The meeting came within 24 hours of Pope John's dramatic call for Christians to work actively for church unity. Conducted in great cordiality, it lasted two and one half hours. Assembled were men of many faiths, Anglicans, Methodists, Lutherans, Quakers, Congregationalists, Armenians, and Syrian Orthodox. They sat shoulder to shoulder with seven papal envoys at the hotel, situated just 200 yards from St. Peter's Basilica. Never before in modern times had so many Catholic churchmen sat down with so many representatives of so many different non-Catholic churchmen in a formal examination of joint aims. Some high sources said the meeting was without precedent in the annuals of Christianity. The Vatican swore all participants to secrecy, unquote. Then on October 16, the same paper stated that the Augustine Cardinal Bia, as he addressed a special reception of some 40 Orthodox, Protestant, and other observed observer delegates, used these words, my very dear brothers in Christ. In the Oregonian of October 16, the same day as the above meeting, I find these words. To many observers here, the most fascinating aspect of the Ecumenical Council is the chart, is the change it represents in the Catholic attitude to the other Christian churches. Exchanges between Pope John the 23rd and other Christian leaders have rarely been more cordial. Dr. Ramsey, the Anglican leader, commented last week that there are main issues on which the views of the Anglican and the Catholic churches would be substantially identical." End quote. Then on October 18, a few days after the opening of the Council, the newspaper Statesman stated that Pope John XXIII, the dominant spirit of the Council, told a regular weekly audience Wednesday that he was pleased with the way the council was progressing. We are on our way. Let me continue now by reading from the World Yearbook of 1966, page 82 and 83. Rediscovery, reconciliation, 
reunion among Christians have hit the front pages locally and internationally. After centuries of Cold War among Christians, Roman Catholics and Protestants have found each other again. Whether in its local congregation or at its national conventions, every Christian denomination is facing the necessity of basically rethinking the question of its relation to other churches. This great new fact of modern Christian history has permanently changed the map of Christendom, and more changes are occurring with each week's news, unquote. Think of that now. Ecumenical developments are so rapid that each week new plans are developing with changes. Then on page 511 of the same book are two words that stand out, come and go. I'm quoting, the, canc- the council opened with Pope John's 23rd extending his arms to the bishops who are the successors of the apostles and to the whole world saying, come, come to Rome. Very fittingly, the last schema to be passed and proclaimed was the one on missions, a beautiful parallel to the final words about making disciples of all nations. The delegates began with the liturgy or come to the sanctuary and they finished with the decree go into the world unquote thus we can see that the church of rome with the full cooperation of non-catholics established its two objectives in joining the ecumenical movement she was bringing about a union of all churches and launching a drive to unite all nations of which she is to take control. Thus the modern day Tower of Babel is growing in height and power before our very eyes in the development of the United Nations with its headquarters in New York. We are told that the real power Behind this drive is Satan who is inspiring modern Babylonians to, and I quote from Great Controversy 561, to manifest as much assurance as if, indeed, they had made a covenant with death and an agreement with hell, as if they had erected an impassable, impenetrable, barrier between themselves and the vengeance of God, unquote. This is exactly what was implied in those opening remarks that I read of the beginning of the first ecumenical program. How rapidly prophecy is being fulfilled today. The inhabitants of Babylon are wide awake in their activity while sorry to say the inhabitants of Jerusalem seem to be sound asleep. 
the inhabitants of Babylon are working feverishly for their king, Lucifer. Why? Oh, why are we so asleep? Could it be that our church leaders have been inhaling the toxic fumes from the cup held in the hands of Babylon? Is this why we hear so little or nothing at all from our pulpits warning us of what is taking place? Never forget, Satan is erecting this modern Tower of Babel because he has purpose to control the whole world by uniting humanity both religiously and politically, which will be under a one-head authority of the papacy. And scripture tells us exactly that all nations will submit to papal rule. Listen, Revelation 17, verse 13. These had one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And so we see God's last prophet has revealed that the most Protestant churches will depart from the faith. No longer will they accept God's word as their foundation, but will accept fables and the spiritual legacies of Romanism. They will drink so deeply from the cup of paganism from which papal doctrines are established that they will finally cross the gulf and completely join hands with the Roman church. While this prophecy began to be fulfilled years ago, it is now rapidly developing in everything that we hear and see. Let us restudy a few paragraphs from Inspiration. Great Controversy 571. It is not without reason that the claim has been put forth in Protestant countries that, that Catholicism differs less widely from Protestantism than in former times. There has been a change, but the change is not in the papacy. Catholicism indeed resembles much of Protestantism that now exists because Protestantism has so greatly degenerated since the days of the Reformers. Would you permit me to read that again? Because of its great importance, especially of some things I'm going to read about Seventh-day Adventists in just a moment. Again, let me say this was taken from Great Controversy 571. It is not without reason that the claim has been put forth in Protestant countries that Catholicism differs less widely from Protestantism than in former times. There has been a change, but the change is not in the papacy. Catholicism indeed resembles much of the Protestantism that now exists because Protestantism has so greatly degenerated since the days of the Reformers. Then, in the same book, 
563. Romanism is now regarded by Protestants with far greater favor than in former years. In those countries where Catholicism is not in the ascendancy and the papacy are taking a conciliatory course in order to gain influence, there is an increasing indifference concerning the doctrines that separate the Reformed churches from the papal hierarchy, the opinion is gaining ground that, after all, we do not differ so widely upon vital points as had been supposed, and that a little concession on our part will bring us to a better understanding with Rome. The time was when Protestants placed a high value upon the liberty of conscience which had been so dearly purchased. They taught their children to abhor popery and held that with room would be disloyalty to God. But how widely different are the sentiments now expressed, unquote. And there is much more to remember in our hearts if we are to remain faithful to God. On page 563, I read, the defenders of the papacy declare that the church has been maligned and that Protestant world are inclined to accept the statement. Many urge that it is unjust to judge the church of today by the abominations and absurdities that marked her reign during the centuries of ignorance and darkness. They excuse her horrible cruelty as the result of the barbarianism of the times and plead that the influence of modern civilization has changed her sentiments. Again, on 572, instead of standing in defense of the faith once delivered to the saints, they are now, as it were, apologizing to Rome for their uncharitable opinion of her and begging pardon for their bigotry. And this is exactly what is taking place today between Catholics and Protestants. And dare I say, it is affecting tens of thousands of professed Seventh-day Adventists who are still captured by the false teachings of Desmond Ford's position on the Vatican. This man recently wrote in his journal, The Good News Unlimited, volume 14, number 10, entitled, The Truth About the Antichrist and Christ Meets Antichrist. In these two articles, Desmond Ford specifically teaches, and I quote, that Judas is Jesus' Antichrist, page 8. He no longer believes, as the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy teach, that Daniel 7 identifies the little horn as the papacy. Instead, he regards the Roman Catholic Church as having changed. Since Vatican II, he states the Catholic Church has become essentially Protestant, that's exactly what the spirit of prophecy said would happen. 
And now, he has aligned himself with the modern view of Protestants. Listen to the quotation that he has written. Quote, Never forget, dear friends, that since Vatican II, the modern Roman Catholic Church is not the same as the medieval Roman Catholic Church. When Pope John opened the windows to change in 1962, a metamorphosis began for the Roman Catholic Church. In this country, the vast majority of the cardinals are quite Protestant in some areas of their thinking. Never confuse modern Catholicism with medieval Catholicism. Modern Catholic leaders decry what happened during the Middle Ages. Many Roman Catholics today rejoice in the gospel taught by Martin Luther. Unquote. That's from page 9. And many liberal Adventists hang on every word that Desmond Ford speaks. Nowhere in these eight pages does he say that Catholicism has ever been the Antichrist power, but rather he states that Jesus did not say our modern Pope is Antichrist. He says on page 9 that Jesus said Judas is Antichrist. So now you know where Desmond Ford stands on this very important matter. And I tremble for the thousands of Seventh-day Adventists who believe and teach what Desmond Ford believes, which is contrary to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. God has thoroughly warned us of what is to take place and what will soon be the coming results. In Great Controversy 566, Protestants have tampered with and patronized popery. They have made comp compromises and concessions which papists themselves are surprised to see and fail to understand. And may I add, oh, how Protestantism has fallen. We must never be deceived by the present attitude of the Roman Church. She is making it appear as if she has drastically changed. But the facts remain. She is no different. Listen to this from the Pen of Inspiration, Great Controversy 565. Romanism as a system is no more in harmony with the gospel of Christ now than at any former period in her history. The Protestant churches are in great darkness, or they would discern the signs of the times. The Roman church is far-reaching in her plans and modes of operation. She is employing every device to extend her influence and increase her power in preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world, to reestablish persecution, and to undo all that Protestantism has done. End of quote. 
Did you comprehend what the motives of Rome really are? One, to gain control once again of the entire world. Two, to establish persecution again. Three, to undo all that Protestantism has accomplished to establish freedom and truth. And she is turning to every field that will assist her. Recently, I received a paper that opened my eyes. Suddenly the ecumenical movement is moving into the field of medicine. What a shrewd move, for most all people have the highest regard for the medical profession. This will open the door to demonic healing, which the spirit of prophecy has clearly predicted will be a part of the coming false revival. I hold in my hand an announcement sent to me by one of our dear historic medical doctors. It's an invitation from the Harvard Medical School in cooperation, and notice this, with the Mind and Body Medical Institute of the Deaconess Hospital. And you know who that is. It announces a three-day course to be held in the Boston Marietta Motel Hotel of Massachusetts. This could very well be the beginning of accepted demonic healing in the medical field, which is to be a part of the great false revival soon to come, which is to give credence to the papal demand for a worldwide keeping of Sunday as a day of worship. Inside this folder I read these words, that the object of these courses is to explore the relationship between spirituality and healing in the medical field, that spirituality is expressed as an experience of the presence of a power a force, an energy, of which is perceived as God. And this includes all major religions of the world. The faculty of this speci these special courses is composed of some 18 different departments found in such universities as Harvard, Duke, and Georgetown. It also includes theology schools and a noted Seventh-day Adventist hospital. And look at the courses of study. Here are some dealing with spiritual healing practices such as the Hindu and the Buddhist, Jewish, Catholic, Islamic, Pentecostal, Christian science. And yes, sorry to say, we are right in this ecumenical movement for Seventh-day Adventist spiritual healing practices are noted. And these courses are accredited by the ACCME for continued medical education for physicians. Don't think that this is something that can be swept under the rug. Any 
historic Seventh-day Adventists can clearly see the road ahead for the ecumenical unity in this program. I must speak with certainty and positiveness. The end is coming quickly. Jesus is coming soon. A great revival will soon break forth with proof by demonic power. The Tower of Babel will then have arrived to its final height as the papacy rules the world with its mark of authority, the mark of the beast, Sunday worship, with the full support from religion, education, the medical profession, politicians, and national governments. The facts are, Babylon is not leaving one possible opposition to chance. Oh, that we somehow as a people of God in this remnant church should give more praise to God for the guidance that he has given to us in these perilous times in such books as Great Controversy. For there I read on page 564, the papal church will never relinquish her claim to infallibility. All that she has done in her persecution of those who reject her dogmas, she holds to be right. And would she not repeat the same acts should the opportunity be presented? Let the restraints now imposed by secular governments be removed and Rome be reinstated in her former power and there would speedily be a revival of her tyranny and persecution. Reading on, a well-known writer speaks thus of the attitude of papal hierarchy as regards freedom of conscience and of the perils which especially threaten the United States from the success of her policy. The specific tone of Rome in the United States does not imply a change of heart. She is tolerant where she is helpless, says Bishop O'Connor. Religious liberty is merely endured until the opposite can be carried into effect without peril to the Catholic world. On 581 of the same book, let the principles once be established in the United States that the church may employ or control the power of the state, that religious observances may be enforced by secular laws. In short, that the authority of the church and state is to dominate the conscience and the triumph of Rome in this country is assured." Unquote. You may be startled by my next statement, but it's the gospel truth. For in a very, very short time, I believe you will never again hear a sermon like this. Why? Because it will be against the law in these United States of America. This is why the theologians within our church today who have been trained in the higher learning centers of Babylon teach you that we have nothing to fear from Rome 
and that as a church we will be able to spread the gospel by participating in this great ecumenical movement. But they are dead wrong. Don't let anybody brainwash you, not even the highest authority of our church. In Great Controversy 571, I read, The papacy is just what prophecy declared that she would be. The apostasy of the latter times. It is a part of her policy to assume the character which will best accomplish her purpose. But beneath the variable appearance of the chameleon, she conceals the invariable venom of the serpent. Unquote. The facts are the sting of Babylon has always been and always be will be vicious and the results fatal beloved this is what god has stated of the roman church today how alarming that while the catholic church has not changed the protestant churches have changed they are so blinded by drinking the intoxicating doctrine from babylon that she no longer remembers what it is that she protested for so many years. Inspiration further reveals of Rome, and I am reading Great Controversy 581, she is silently growing into power. Her doctrines are exerting their influence in legislative halls, in the churches, and in the hearts of men. She is piling up her lofty, massive structures in the recesses of which her former persecutions will be repeated. Stealthily and unsuspectedly, she is strengthening her forces to further her own ends when the time shall come for her to strike. All that she desires is vantage ground. And this is already being given her, unquote. Was I ever amazed and surprised last Sunday evening, October the 1st, to see on the CNN headline news a picture of a Catholic bishop with President Clinton and his daughter coming out of the Washington Catholic Cathedral where they had just held a mass in honor of the opening of the United States Supreme Court session. Wake up, O Laodicean Church. It's later than you think. When the papacy is so bold enough as to become openly involved with the United States Supreme Court. If Ellen White were alive today, she would certainly tell us that the time is ripe for Rome to strike now. I must point out that Satan's first objective when this unholy union is formed will be to establish and enforce a Sunday law. This is and always has been the mark of Babylon's authority. In Great Controversy 573, in the moments 
movements now in progress in the United States to secure for the institutions and usage of the church the support of the state, Protestants are following <clears throat> in the steps of papists, nay, more. They are opening the door for the papacy to regain in Protestant America the supremacy which he has lost in the old world. And that which gives greater significance to this movement is the fact a custom which originated with Rome and which she claims as the sign of her authority. It is the spirit of the papacy, the spirit of conformity to worldly customs, the veneration for human traditions above the commandments of God that is permeating the Protestant churches and leading them on to do the same work of Sunday exaltation which the papacy has done before them. This consolidation of power between Catholics and Protestants will make the keeping of God's law a crime to be punished by the state government. And to make matters even worse, the devil will add to this consolidation of false religions by bringing into it the spell of spiritualism. Great Controversy 588. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp the hands of the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience." Unquote. The deceptions of this demonic miracle-working power will be astounding. Only the elect within Jerusalem will understand the deceptions because there will be a remnant within the remnant who have so prayerfully studied God's word, aided by a clear reasoning of the Holy Spirit and of the, whole, of the spirit of prophecy. Those who have not diligently studied God's word and the warnings found in the red books will be deluded by Satan's master plan. This is why we need to be alerted to the plans of Romanism of the ecumenical movement. For Satan is using this system as his mouthpiece as we enter this last conflict. Current events reveal how the Catholic power is influencing the churches of the world. But now, let us consider how she is also influencing the nations of the world. For the Pope this very week is visiting <coughs> the United Nations Organization while millions have followed his every move by radio and television, which I hope to speak of in another tape. And notice how Rome is capturing the entire world in a book by a former Jesuit professor of the Vatican Biblical Institute, Malachi Martin, discusses the Pope's approach to the world.
on page 59 of his book, The Keys of This Blood. Speaking of a new world order, he states, and I quote, there is no way it can be reversed or called off. All will be powerfully and radically altered forever. No sector of our lives will remain untouched. On page 15, our way of life, our families, our jobs, our commerce, our education, our culture, our money, our religion, everything must change. Page 16, a system will be introduced and installed in our midst by the end of this final decade of this second millennium. Page 32, the Pope has served notice that he intends to take up and effectively exercise once more the international role that has been central to the traditions of Rome. How startling are the facts that the deadly wound she received in the time of the end is at this end of time rapidly being healed. Slyly she is working her way into the leadership of the world. She is exerting her influence in the legislative halls, in the churches, and in the hearts of men. God has plainly given us his word that in this final act, the nations of the world will unite and give their power and authority to the Roman Catholic power. By this very act, the devil will make his final thrust against the city of God, where God's people are in Jerusalem. Revelation 17, verse 12 and 13. The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength to the beast. Great Controversy 581. God's word has given warning of the impending danger. Let this be unheeded and the Protestant world will learn what the purposes of Rome are only when it is too late to escape the snare. Let us never forget that after the serpent has struck and inserted its poisonous venom into the victim, it is then too late to escape. Even though the Roman Church is donning Christ-like garments and extending cordiality toward the separated brethren, she harbors the sting of death. There is only safety in Jerusalem. Now, please don't miss number four, the coming of an overwhelming surprise. Let us pray. Loving Father, oh, help us somehow to awaken as to what is coming. And day by day, prepare our hearts that we may be firm in the word of God to stand in the coming crisis is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. 
Yeah. Hey. 